Our Father, this morning we are thankful that you give us free access to the Word of God to study and to understand and to develop our, the resources that we need in order to live effectively here, to know the beginning of the work that you have done and the end, and to know what our role is and what you've called us to do. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given us each the talents, the gifts, and the opportunities to serve you. And Father, every one of us has a place and a role to play. And we're so grateful that we don't do it in our own strength, but we do it in the strength of God. So Father, we ask you to bless us now and to guide our, th our thinking and our study. And I gr I'm grateful, Father, for each one here and pray you'll minister to each heart according to your plan and your will. In Christ's name, amen. We're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. I'd like to read Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Last week we were looking at the events that led up to this, the encounter between Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden, the event which is called in theology the fall of man. We saw the response after they had eaten and committed this act of disobedience, the response to God as he came in the garden and spoke to them. And we noted that uh, God gave them ample opportunity to readily confess what they had done and then, of course, to seek repentance or to become repentant. But we discovered that they only accepted partial responsibility for what they had done. Each blamed the next one down the line. Adam said, the woman which you, O Lord, gave me, she's the responsible one. And then, of course, she turned to the serpent in turn. So each would only accept partial responsibility. Yes, I did it, but I'm not really responsible for having done it. And it's so, it sounds so much like the world in which we live today, where everybody is passing the buck to someone else, especially if you watch polit the, you know, the, polit the politicians and all the things that are going on now as they uh, come up towards the New Hampshire primary. Everybody is blaming everybody else for what's happening or has happened. It's kind of interesting, I think, that as we come to this point where God is to bring discipline and redemption all at the same time. 
And I think it's an important point for us to remember that God brings discipline for the purpose of redemption. God's ultimate plan is the plan of redemption. God wants to redeem us. God is not interested in damning us or cursing us. God wants to redeem us, and therefore discipline is for that purpose. And, and we've, of course, studied many scriptures in our own lives that make that point clear. Now, it's interesting that God's order here of pronouncement of punishment was the reverse order by which the blame was passed. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, so God starts with the serpent and works back up or across uh, the order as we read, the, read this passage this morning. First, God cursed the serpent. Now, I think there are three things at least to note here, and they are on your outline. The Scripture makes it very clear that it was the sin of Adam that brought pain, death, the curse, upon the entire world, not just man and woman, but upon all of creation, the whole created order. And that is not even this planet Earth only. It's the whole created order. I don't believe that God created the universe in the first place to be something that was in the process of decay because God creates perfectly. And he said it was all good. And when he said it was all good, I believe that meant all the stars were in their place and all the planets were in their place and they could be there forever. But with the curse came chaos and disorder. With the curse came this concept of entropy, that winding down of the universe, of this solar system, of our lives. The other day, in some periodical, I can't remember what it was, it may have been the newspaper for that matter, uh, they were talking about the fact that many doctors today, or some doctors today, feel that as we advance in medicine, that we may push the ultimate level of, of human life up to 99 years. Well, of course, you all know that there are people who live beyond that today, but that's not the average by any means. But that's not the way God intended it to be, right? I mean, Adam himself lived almost a millennium. And then, of course, the age level dropped, particularly rapidly after the flood, for factors that we'll talk about when we get there sometime in 93. No, <laughs> no. We'll get there before that. In this particular verse, we see, first of all, that God cursed the serpent beyond the general curse. The, the general curse was applied to all life, but then he says specifically to the serpent, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you, you shall eat all the days of your life. So there was a, a, a curse beyond the general curse that applied specifically to the serpent. Secondly, I think this implies that whatever beauty the serpent possessed, whatever attractiveness as an animal that it possessed, it lost. And its method of locomotion, which, I, which is clearly implied was not crawling on its belly, was also lost. Now, we read those passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel several Sundays ago, which 
describe something of Satan in his perfect condition and how he fell. And, and some of that description there, where, when it says, you were beautiful in Eden, I think applies not only to the fact that the serpent, or that is, Satan as the anointed cherub was, was beautiful beyond description, but that the serpent, the, the animal which he inhab inhabited there in the garden, was, was a beautiful animal. It wasn't an ugly, hissing thing hanging out of a tree, as we often see it portrayed in art. I mean, who'd be attracted by that? I don't think so. It was an attractive animal, and it lost this attractiveness at this moment in time. Now, we should recognize this is not a vindictive act of a capricious God saying, I'm going to curse this animal. First of all, the animal doesn't care. Animals have no sense of, uh, you know, self-consciousness. They don't go around, the snakes don't go around the ground saying, boy, I was really a lot better a long time ago, but look what God did to me. They, they don't have that sense at all. We tend to anthropomorphize things too much. We, we've seen too much Walt Disney, and, and we think, you know, <laughs> the animals really have this ability to think and all of this, and they don't. They, they're not really conscious of themselves, and they don't know that their status is good or bad or indifferent. Not that they don't suffer. Yes, an animal can suffer, but not as we do. I think we have to view this as a symbolic act on the part of God. The snake has been the prime... You, you look through the art of cultures all over the world, and you'll discover the snake is very frequently portrayed as sort of the symbol of all that is sinister and evil. I don't think that's an accident. Or that's just, well, you know, looking around all the animals, what would you decide as an animal to portray evil? No, I think that comes from this event. God created it as... I mean, God changed it so that it would become this symbol... And as we noted in Scripture, as we read those passages in Revelation, Scripture refers to Satan as that old serpent. In general, mankind has a greater hatred and fear of the snake than virtually any other animal you can think of, any other creature. And this is interesting because this is in spite of the fact that the vast majority of snakes on planet Earth are totally harmless to human beings. There's only a few, really relative few, that are harmful of the thousands of species of snakes that are harmful to mankind. And I think our excessive fear is, is unnatural and is unexplainable except in the light of this verse, this passage, Genesis 3. A third point, I think, to note from this passage is that the serpent was cursed in order and said that he would eat dust. Now, this is not to be taken literally. Snakes don't go around eating the dirt of the ground. It's a figurative term. They do crawl on their bellies and slither, as you know, through the ground, mostly. And, of course, they eat their prey in the dirt of the ground. But it symbolizes something. It symbolizes the great humiliation that would be brought upon the one symbolized by the serpent, that is Satan. Satan's humiliation was to be in at that point, you know, he was thrown out of heaven, the first humiliation, and now this humiliation will continue. And he would be cursed and hopeless and helpless 
in his ultimate existence. And I think this symbolizes that. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is one of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. This, in this verse, we discover that God put enmity, which means antagonism, between the serpent, and of course this means Satan, as he is symbolized by the serpent, not between man and the actual snake itself. And the woman, along with her seed, her progeny, her offspring, meaning the human race, as time would pass. Now it's true that women tend to have a little bit more loathing of snakes, maybe on the average, than men do. But I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. It seems possible that Satan was hoping to win Adam and Eve over to his cause. And that Adam and Eve would become allied with him as Satan continued to seek that equality with the Almighty. Because that's what he sought in the, in the beginning. He wanted to be like the Most High. And I don't think he's given up that quest. He still is seeking for self-exaltation. If you've read uh, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it really portrays, I think, uh, well the essence of what it means to be demonic. And that is, it's just total desire for self-aggrandizement, self-exaltation, to, to make self oneself more important than anything and everybody else. That is really the ultimate of evil. Because God wants us to yield to Him as the Almighty and to serve Him with gladness. And as we do so, He will then lift us up to the place we belong. But this desire to exalt self is really the epitome of evil. You remember if you've read uh, The Hobbit, Gollum? The critter Gollum in there, uh, he, he started out as a, as a normal hobbit, as I understand. Uh, where's Alan? Is that right, Alan? He started out as a, as a normal hobbit, but as time passed and, and, and this, this desire of self got a hold of him, he became more and more the shriveled up frog-like thing, uh, which, which becomes sort of symbol, symbolic of evil, at least in, in that story. And it, it's this, this debasement that is the fruit of it all. I think Satan wanted Adam and Eve's allegiance as he sought this, this position, this self-glorification. And he looked at the natural reproductive capacities of, of mankind as the opportunity for him to build an army of followers. And all made what? In the image of God. Oh, what a glorious army he would have to try to overtake or at least demand of God what he had wanted in the beginning. I think it's very true for us to realize that billions have actually followed in his footsteps. Billions and billions of human beings have chosen to go in the ranks of the enemy. And it seems so tragic, and it's hard to conceive of the fact that when we, when we read about the Noahic Flood, we read about a time in, when it says, in which it says that the only man who was righteous in the eyes of God was one, and that is Noah, of all the human race at the time the Flood began. 
Now, we, we again don't know how many people were on planet Earth, but it certainly was in the millions, maybe hundreds of millions, maybe even more. It was a good population, you can be sure. And yet only one person walked rightly in the eyes of God. It's, it's incredible. And along with him came seven others. And yet there are billions, I think, through the course of history who have not yielded and joined the ranks of the enemy, who have not chosen to serve the God of this world. But there is a great host that has triumphed and will yet triumph. And hopefully we are all part of that triumphant host that will walk with God and resist the enemy and will not be a part of his attempt to usurp God's throne. Let me, uh, for a minute, turn back to the book of Revelation. Here's a, a kind of a bittersweet passage in Revelation chapter 7 which talks a little bit about a triumphant host at the end time. It becomes triumphant through blood. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they, and from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There is a triumphant host yet to come. There is a triumphant host which has passed, and hopefully we are a part of the current triumphant host that will walk with the Lord. From Adam and Eve to these martyrs that we read about here in the book of Revelation, these have triumphed over Satan in the righteousness and in the strength of the one that is discussed in this third chapter of Genesis in the 15th verse. Of the seed of the woman who had come one day, it is in his righteousness and his strength that the enemy has not really captured the whole human race to walk in his way. One day, Eve would give birth to sons and daughters, not in one day, but subsequently. And on down through time, others would be born until there would be that one woman that we read about, of course, in the Gospels, who would give birth to the Redeemer. And that's the clear implication here in Genesis 3.15. And the passage tells us that Satan, the serpent, will bruise the heel of that one born of the woman. And of course, we view that as the crucifixion, where those who were opposed to Christ felt that they were triumphant. They put him on the cross. And yet, 
It is he who would bruise Satan's head. And that bruising would be fatal because we read in the 20th chapter of Revelation, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that bruising of his head will be a final and ultimate crushing of the enemy. But in the course of time, before the crucifixion and after the crucifixion, there was a battle. There was an enmity, an antagonism that existed between the godly Hebrews, for example, and, and others who had committed themselves to Christ and the world. And that antagonism continues even until today between the sons of earth, if you will, and the sons of God as we see the true church today. There are several passages which illustrate this antagonism, this conflict. Matthew chapter 13, I'd like to read a few verses from that passage. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 36. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The one who would come one day as the son of Eve. And the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Now this is not demons. This means humans who have chosen to walk the way of the enemy. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear." A picture of that history-wide antagonism and enmity between the sons of God and the sons of the evil one. And John, in his, in his first letter, goes on to say a little bit more relative to this antagonism. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because he, his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, 
who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. That enmity was there from the very beginning of the birth of sons and daughters to Adam and Eve. That enmity continues until today. And you and I experience it every day. We experience, of course, the, the if impact of the fall all the time in the problems that we experience physically and emotionally and mentally and whatever. But there is this also, also this antagonism which is very real. And that's why Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, because those persons who, who prove to be a problem and, and, and an antagonism in our lives are really motivated by the evil one. I'm not saying everybody's demon-possessed by any means, but unconsciously they're motivated by, this, by the God of this world, by the spirit of this world. That spirit is the evil one. And the vast majority of human beings think worldly thoughts because that's all around them. It's what they've grown up in, and, and, and they've never been transformed. Their eyes have never been opened to the truth. It's amazing when you think about it that the Bible can be taught as literature in schools, and people could study and, and read through, the, through Scripture in, 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 in many of your universities, and people can be professors of it for years, and their eyes have never been opened. They have no idea what they're reading. It's just, quote, literature to them. Poetic thoughts. And the power and the truth of it has never broken through. Because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. And our prayer needs to be that the God of the universe will open their eyes. That there will be a massive switching of allegiance from the God of this world to the God who is the true and the living God. That the people will burn their idols. And we may not be worshiping wooden and stone statues in our houses. I hope none of us are even in any inclination in that way, but I mean even through our country. But the, the idols are there nevertheless, right? They may be shaped a little different. Sometimes they're shaped about like this, and they have kind of a roundish oval thing in the middle here, which glows. <laughs> That's the God of many people. It's also, I think, possible that this verse in Genesis tells us or implies something of the incarnation of Satan at the end of time, where it talks about his head being bruised. Let's turn, if you will, to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not quickly be shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And this seems to be a, another illustration of, of what's described in the book of Daniel, of the abomination of desolation. But if we turn to again to the book of Revelation, 
chapter 13, we, we see a little bit further description of an incarnation, as it were, of that old serpent, the devil. Revelation 13, verse 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming out, up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were, were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And then chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 19 we discover who is able to wage war with the beast, right? This passage, in, in, that is this chapter, first of all, describes the one who comes on the great white horse who is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. And verse 19 it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed. Uh, well, we won't read that part. But he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, it's possible when it talks about bruising his head that it's not just meta metaphorical, but it also refers even to this bruising or this killing, if you will, of one of the heads of the beast, which ultimately turns out, although there's a healing momentarily, it seems, to be fatal in the long run. Well, after dealing with the serpent, God turns to Eve in Genesis 3.16. And in two areas of Eve's life, which were to be two of the most important areas of her life, God pronounces the impact of the curse. He says to the woman... To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In the area of childbirth and in the area of her marital relationship, in this case, of course, specifically to Adam, God pronounces the impact of sin. Now, by implication... In just a reasonable thought relative to what a perfect world would have been like, and by implication of what is said here, the function of reproduction, as it was originally created and intended by God, was not only to be joy-filled, but pain-free. It's hard for us today, who, who know otherwise, to conceive of how that could be. But that's the way God intended it in the beginning before sin entered the world, there was no pain at all. I mean, human beings were not subjected to pain as we experience virtually every day in our lives in one form or another. However, the death and the decay and the corruption which entered the world through sin altered the reproductive capacities and function 
so that the birth of a child would become not only stressful physically, but emotionally and even spiritually. I think this must be viewed not as a capricious act or an unfair act by God. Oh God, you were so unfair to touch the woman in this one specific area. Why did you do that? God, I think, allowed it for some very, very significant and important reasons. God does nothing capriciously as the gods of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans have done in mythology. First of all, we discover throughout Scripture, God never condones sin. God doesn't say, oh, well, the person's sinning, but I'm going to bless them anyway. No. You don't find that pattern in Scripture. The original pleasure and ease with which reproduction was to take place in the state of perfection, could not be allowed to prevail in the fallen condition that men and women would find themselves. Let me read a familiar passage in Deuteronomy. Familiar if you've been studying Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey, now notice these conditional clauses. If you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I, have, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you, shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. What is the condition? If we obey, then these blessings come. Verse 15 portrays the opposite. It shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. God's blessing upon us is always conditional. Now it's true, there's the general blessing which the scripture talks about where God causes the rain, <laughs> oh that he would, to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But when it comes to the specific blessing that God gives, specific blessing comes to those who are obedient. And you don't just find that in Deuteronomy, you find that throughout Scripture. And so obviously God could not allow the blessings of perfection to still prevail in a time of disobedience. Secondly, childbirth is serious business. And the pain and anxiety are to serve to remind us that an eternal soul has been brought into the world. This is not the multiplication of rabbits or chimpanzees or chinchillas or something. This is a new eternal soul created in the image of God. 
That which is obtained through great effort, pain and danger, is much more likely to be cherished. You've all heard the, the teachings that in many foreign countries, when they take the Word of God in there, they actually sell the Scripture to the people. And you might say, why are they doing that? Are they trying to make merchandise of God's Word? No. Because if you just give it to them, they don't think it's important, but if they have to pay for it, suddenly it becomes dear to them. And so it is. God's desire was that every child would be valuable to his parents so that those parents would, would do their utmost to care for that child. And toil and pain greatly increase the value of a new life. And, and this is stated really succinctly in, uh, I'll just read the verse to you in John chapter 16, verse 21. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for the joy that a child has been born into the world. Well, that doesn't mean every woman forgets the pain of labor. It simply means that she's not so distressed by it that she is, is, is not able to appreciate this child which has been born. But the joy of becoming a mother and of bringing this new child into the world tends to put the pain into a secondary place in her life. This is important. If children just came with ease into our world today, it would seem that there would be a less value placed upon them, by many at least. Then thirdly, a third reason, I think, is that in childbearing, the woman, in effect, becomes a type of Christ. Because for many, and for many it was actually going over the door, threshold of death, but for many it's going almost to the door of death in order to bring new life into the world. And we are fortunate, of course, to live in the 20th century in this country where we have medical help. But it really wasn't very long ago when in, in many of the cities, even in the United States, a woman who for the first time went into a, quote, hospital to give birth had only a one in two chance of coming back out of that hospital alive with her baby. That seems atrocious to us. I have a collection of original readings that talk about some of the, these uh, medical factors in 19th century in America. And uh, some of the doctors were refusing to believe that uh, in their going from one uh, patient to another in the maternity ward, that they might be transferring disease on their hands. They never bothered to wash their hands. And even when it was shown that that was probably the case, many of them rejected it because, well, we've always done it this way, you know, why should we ever change? And that's the attitude many people have. But they were actually producing a 50% casualty rate amongst the women who were in the maternity ward because this disease was being passed from one to the other. So really, many did die. If you've read in detail the life, you don't even have to read in detail, if you read something in general about the life of Henry VIII, now I'm not advocating his life as anything to emulate, but Henry VIII illustrates this, at least one of his wives did. As you know, his, his first wife was Catherine, and she gave birth to a daughter, but he wanted a son to succeed him, and so ultimately he was able, or through a lot of, uh, of uh, chicanery, to 
uh, divorced his wife, and then he married another lady secretly and then openly, Anne Boleyn, who gave birth to another daughter. And uh, after that, gave, you know, was uh, aborted, not, not aborted, um, miscarried two or three times. And so he decided, I've got to have a wife who's going to give me a son. So he had her head cut off. And then he married Jane Seymour. <laughs> now Jane Seymour gave him a son. He loved Jane Seymour deeply, but she died in giving birth to that son to Henry VIII. She, she gave her all, literally, to bring this son that he so wanted. Now I'm sure she didn't think about that all consciously. I'm just willing to give my life so that he can have a son. But that's how it turned out. And that son would succeed him to the throne. But only briefly, and as a child. So a woman really becomes a type of Christ in, a, in the sense that she goes to the doorstep of death to bring new life into the world. And you and I know that Christ himself went all the way into death in order to bring life, to become the the, the second Adam, the last Adam, to give birth to the church. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went all the way to death in order to bring the church to life. For the woman trusting in Christ, even today, childbirth can be a time of real closeness to Christ and, and hopefully to her husband. And her suffering can be somewhat mitigated by the blessing and the rejoicing that should accompany this event in the Lord knowing that the Lord is there with her at the very moment of the birth of that child. You think of the pagan societies of this world today when so much awfulness goes along with the bringing of a child into this world. And the witch doctor is there to blow smoke into the baby's face as it's first born so that the spirits will be chased. You know, it's, it's just awful. Needs not to be anything like that for us as God's people. Now the last portion of this verse, Genesis 3.16, has stirred up a great deal of discussion down through time, as you might well understand. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That doesn't sound too good, does it? As you read it straight forth there. It seems to imply that in the original state in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve were partners. Each had his and her role to fulfill, but neither dominated the other. Now it's possible, at least some commentators would say, that uh, because Eve assumed the leadership here in bringing the temptation to her husband, that God declared that for the rest of history, the woman shall be in subjection to the husband. The wife shall be in subjection to the husband. Now some have argued that this is not a specific curse. This is not a mandate. This is not something God said, from now on this is the way it's to be. 
It's simply that God was stating how it would come about as a result of the curse of sin. This would naturally become reality. Not that I'm ordaining it to be so, but it will simply be that way. Because God knew from the beginning what all things would be. And that because of the curse of sin, quote, might would make right in the eyes of most of mankind. But whether this was mandated by God or simply a statement by God of what would be, we have to believe that God in no way pronounced here that women, wives, are to be servants and slaves to their husbands. But you know, that's really the way it is in so much of the world. You look through the heathen world particularly, and in heathen homes in America, that's often the way it is. Women have been humiliated and subjected and, 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 and put into a, not only a secondary place, but in many cases, a place no higher than the animals. It's like the old Hebrew proverb, you know, Lord, make me anything but a woman. And, and, and that's a sad, sad commentary. And in many parts of the world, hey, the guy would much rather lose his wife than his donkey or his ox. Why? Because they are children of the God of this world. Their, their thoughts are imbued with the thinking of the enemy, not of God, because that's not the way God intended it to be. It's very clear from the first two chapters of Genesis that God created man and woman to be co-equal in his sight and to stand alongside one another. Neither is inferior to the other at all. But this satanic perversion has come to, to prevail in the world today. We know from other scriptures that God didn't plan it that way at all. God did have an order that he did ordain, but it was not subjection, humiliation, and destruction of the female of the human race. God's plan, of course, was that wives would allow their husbands that place of final responsibility for making those kinds of decisions that would impact the family and impact their relationship in a way that could change the course of how things would ultimately go. This, of course, doesn't mean that the wife plays no role in the decision-making process, hardly. Some joke, of course, say, yeah, the man's the head, but the woman's the neck or turns the head, you know. <laughs> It's like uh, in Austrian history, they fought a whole war because they didn't want to have a female empress over the Austrian Empire. It's kind of silly because many of the emperors who had preceded had been dominated by their wives, so what is the difference, really? But it's just the idea that some men didn't want to, you know, they were so high and mighty, they didn't want to have to bow and scrape to a woman who was literally the empress and, and the ultimate authority. So they fought a war, and, and thousands died. For what? For pride. Of course, most wars are fought for that, aren't they? Pride and greed. Now, our pastor has recently preached on, and is preaching on 1 Peter. Let's read a passage that he talked about about mm, two, three, maybe four weeks ago. I can't remember exact order. Three weeks ago, maybe. 1 Peter 3. 
We, we have to distinguish between satanic perversion and God's plan. And Satan wants to muddle it as much as possible. And he has. He's even confused it in the church. And, and, and there are couples within the church of God who don't have the right attitude between husband and wife. And where we used to be before, there was one couple where, you know, things would happen and the husband would always say, you're supposed to be subject to me. As if that was the final thing and she had no right to say anything else. Well, that's not the way God planned it. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding of the hair and wearing of gold jewelry and putting on dresses. And as that's been often pointed out, it's not saying you shouldn't do those things. It's just that that's not to be the only beauty of a person. But let it be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, this requires work, on, on really on anybody's part. The Scripture makes it clear that all of us, as God's people, are to be gentle and quiet people. We're not to be abrasive and brash and, and you know, just kind of like Teddy Roosevelt used to be. You know, they always said, you always knew when Teddy Roosevelt entered a room because he never entered a room, he burst into a room. Well, that's not to be the way we are as God's people. I mean, we're not to be doormats and hide over in the corner and say, oh, woe is me, you know, I'm going to eat worms because I'm not worthy of anything. But we're to be gentle and quiet, and our power is to be based in, in God, what we know of Him, to be living in our lives. For in this way, the former, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive, submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now this doesn't mean, you know, like God or something. You know, just respectful. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, and this is not meaning intellectually weaker or morally weaker or spiritually weaker. It's just talking about the fact that in the physical frame, a woman doesn't have the same strength as a man, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If we don't do these things, as it says here, we might as well go and talk to the wall or to the dog as to try to talk to God. If we're living in a disobedience to, to God, there's no sense at all in prayer. It's not going anywhere. Prayer is not a, no, and now I lay me down to sleep formula we have to go through in order to go to sleep at night. Prayer is communion with God, and we can't commune with the one that we're living in a disobedience with. And sometimes we think, well, we're not living in disobedience as long as I didn't kick the dog when I entered the house this morning or this, this evening. And, and I, I, you know, I didn't slap my wife around, and, and I didn't complain about the food. I, I must be okay. No, it's a whole lot more than that, especially as you read through a passage like this. And you'll notice this is not the only passage which talks about husband-wife relationships having to be right in order for prayer to be effective and heard. Most of us don't pray near enough, do we? 
I can't say everybody. I say most of us. Um, we can just check by attendance at prayer meetings that go along here to know that most of us don't pray enough, at least corporately, whatever we pray privately. It's very, very important that we have a God-given view of the relationship between husbands and wives, the relationship God ordained, and not the perverted world's view, which makes, well, you know, I don't know if you heard uh, the uh, interview that was, I think it was over a year ago now, they were interviewing some Russian males in Russia as it was breaking up, and, and they were implying that to them what they wanted in a wife was somebody who would always be there for them sexually and kick, cook food for them, and that's all they wanted, nothing else. Well, that's the world's view. Not from the woman's point of view, usually, but often from the male point of view. And that's not what God says, because that's, in effect, the woman becomes the slave, the servant to the man. And it's a, it's a relationship of equality. And that's not being broken down by this statement in Genesis 3.16. It's not saying that's not the way it's to be. It's simply implying that because of the impact of sin, it's going to prevail in the world that women are going to be subjected by men. But we must follow God's plan and change that and not let that prevail. God in no way implies inequality or inferiority of the wife. According to many teachings of Scripture, God, of course, ordained an established order where the husband is the head of the home in the sense that he is responsible for the ultimate decisions. Who was responsible for the sin? Adam. Was he the first one to sin? No, Eve was. Was he responsible? Yes. So this headship is ordained by God not to be a dictatorship, but just simply an order by which society and, and the family will progress down through the ages, and an order by which when children are raised, they will have some kind of respect for order, and they will respect both their father and their mother, and as a result, who will they respect? The Heavenly Father, God in heaven. And as you've heard today uh, from, the word, uh, from the mouths of so many Christian psychologists, there are so many young people today who have a real problem with the idea of a good, loving, heavenly father because they never had it modeled in their home. They didn't have a good, loving father. Their father either wasn't there or when he was there, he was slapping them around verbally or physically or even in other ways. And that has really become distorted. But as God's people, we're to live according to his ordination of plan. And mostly it exhibits the love of God and mutual humility. Isn't that hard? One of the greatest and most difficult things for us to exhibit is humility because we automatically in the flesh bristle when somebody gets too close to what we think we really are and kind of rubs us the wrong way, like the cat, you know. But we are to be humble in the sight of God and one another. Well, next week we'll continue on and look at the passage of the next few uh, verses which deal with specifically God's statement relative to Adam, but you'll notice that it doesn't just limit itself to Adam because it's the curse on the ground. And do you know who has done much farming through history? <laughs> many, many women. 
In many societies, the women are the ones who are the farmers while the husbands go hunting. Somewhat carries over into our society, doesn't it, sometimes? Well, we'll look at that next week.